Well, aloha from Maui, and welcome to this week's Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. My name's Michael Benner, and I say it every week, but it is true every week. It it really is a, a pleasure to be with you, to be able to do something like this live on the Internet and by telephone, and you always have your choice. Some people are able to listen live to the first part of the program, and then they grab their cell phone because they they got to run, and they put it on speaker or plug it into their uh, system inside the car, and they're able to listen on the telephone. I think it's so cool. And uh, whether you are listening by web or by telephone, you'll be able to participate when we come to the the discussion or the Q&A part about uh, 30 or 40 minutes into the program here. So stand by for that. And as always, we finish with a guided meditation exercise, which, um, you know, the, the, the benefits of meditating or contemplating privately are enormous. But when you get together with a group that's meditating, and considering, I, I think any time you meditate, you may want to consider the millions of people in the world at any given moment of the day or night that are doing the same thing. And you can enter into that group, if you will. Um, and you may even get a sense, um, a, a feeling that uh, that they're out there. I mean, if you think about it, what? What do we have? Um, four billion, four and a half billion people on the planet. So a few million, maybe tens of millions of people at any given moment are in meditation, either to understand themselves better or a circumstance in their life to understand that better or to maybe aspire to a greater understanding spiritually of, of who we are and what we're for. So we'll do that at the end of the program, too. All of that's coming up. Our topic today on critical thinking, uh, well, the topic is critical thinking, but I want to borrow liberally from a book that I recommend to you as a nice introduction to the topic. The title of the book is Don't Believe Everything You Think. I've heard it said differently, um, just because you think something doesn't mean you need to believe it. Most people are not aware of this. They believe that they must believe everything they think as if it were a well-reasoned conclusion. And the vast majority of what we think, of course, is not a conclusion at all. Uh, Much of it is just a repetition of thoughts that we've had in our past, and that we turn over in our mind, over and over and over and and over again. And most of them we've adopted because we heard them a bunch of times. They came from high credible or maybe authoritative sources, but it's rare that human beings do the due diligence necessary to confirm for themselves the validity of the truth of this particular thought or this way of thinking or this belief system. We're going to talk a little about belief systems today. 
So my premise here at the top is that most of us don't generate our thoughts. Actually, most of us, I will argue, are victims of our thinking. And we don't really know much about what we believe or why we believe it. And we are not very inclined, generally speaking, to reflecting upon or reviewing our thoughts or our thought process. And certainly the the capacity for critical thinking is in everyone, but it's by and large still not taught in school. Children are not taught at any level to be truly critical thinkers. Um, or to think for themselves in any way. Of course, school is still very 19th century. Um, Everybody organized by age, which is one of the most arbitrary factors you could choose to organize people. Okay, you're all the same age? All right, you're all in the same class. (laughs) Regardless of interest or, um, you know, potential are, we all have different intelligence profiles, and IQ is an average of seven or eight different kinds of intelligence. And we really need seven or eight numbers to begin to describe our intelligence profile. I, you might be a very bad reader, but very good at math. And over here, somebody's experiencing just the opposite. And you could get together and help each other, perhaps. But school has been very resistant to that kind of teaching. And so we can graduate from high school. We can graduate from college. We can obtain advanced degrees and still be essentially tape recorders or uh, parrots that just play back what we've learned with very little personal analysis, very little personal insight or understanding. So that's the area we're going to talk about, critical thinking, an introduction to what does it mean, an introduction to what it means, I'll say it that way, to be a critical thinker. And the title of the book, did I say, by Thomas Kidda, K-I-D-A, professor at the University of Massachusetts, is called... um, Don't believe everything you think. (laughs) And we'll explain why today. I think you're going to like it a lot. Hopefully this will be one of the programs that you want to pass on to your friends. And let me remind you that uh, however you're used to listening to the program, whether live or a podcast at the iTunes store, maybe just opens up in your iTunes program that – We do have a gadget on my website to help you forward links to these programs to your friends, and we really appreciate the whole consciousness of paying it forward and sharing this valuable information. Not just my stuff, but anybody that you feel is making a significant contribution in the fields of developing consciousness or awareness, uh, uh, personal growth or spiritual growth or development. Um, Sometimes it's just called self-help or self-improvement or the human potential movement. Um, This is a major significant alternative to politics 
And if you're frustrated by the belief that the only way anything is going to change is for Congress to do it, right, or your local state legislator or city or county council, well, it's not true. When we lift consciousness, when we change our our awareness and promote a personal investigation of who we are and how we develop our sense of who we are, you you go way beyond waiting for the cavalry to come and rescue you. You you <laughs> you're out there at the cutting edge, creating the vital changes that that need to be made and inspiring other people to do the same. So I know lots of folks are just fed up to hear with politics. Some of you love it, can't get enough of it. But to many of us, it's a circus. And if it wasn't so real and having such a negative impact on people, we could perhaps ignore it altogether. But I don't think we can do that. I think we have to be informed politically and aware of what they're up to. But you're in exactly the right place. If you think there's any merit at all to what I'm saying, that there is no greater way to move this world forward, to create the positive, life-affirming changes that need to be made than developing our own sense of awareness or consciousness and helping other people to do the same thing. So the gadget's on the website, theagelesswisdom.com, and you just click on homepage to go inside and then web teleconferences, and you'll see the whole archive there, uh, 115 or 120 programs, and a little gadget, a little link you can click on to forward them simply, Uh, to your friends. Just enter their first name and their email address and off it goes. You can add a message if you want and we'll just forward it for you. So check that out. Go to the website theagelesswisdom.com and the T-H-E is part of it. So the W's dot theagelesswisdom.com Click on homepage to go inside and then Web teleconferences will take you to the archive. Any past program, again, there's over a hundred and how many do we have? I think on the focused passion side, Steve and I just did number 130, and I think we have about 115 over on this side with the, on our sister site, The Ageless Wisdom. So, um, there's well over 200 programs between the two allied sites, FocusedPassion.com and TheAgelessWisdom.com. And these are all free. Focus Passion, you get six for free, and then they're 99 cents. So no limit on the amount of free stuff. And if you do choose to buy it, um, the premium audio programs at Focused Passion. 99 cents is a pretty good deal. Considering that these programs often sell for uh, $15, $20, these audio books, self-help audio books, you decide for yourself. 
All right. Let's go to this book by Professor Kidda. Again, it's Thomas. If you want to make a note and maybe consider buying the book at some point. Um, I don't offhand know how old this is. I don't have a copyright year. But again, let me make sure I have the title right for you. It's Don't Believe Everything You Think. Okay? Don't Believe Everything You Think. And the subtitle is The Six Basic Mistakes We Make in Thinking. And we're going to go through those here today. All right? So there's your title, Don't Believe Everything You Think, subtitle, The Six Basic Mistakes We Make in Thinking, and the author is Thomas Kidda, K-I-D-A, who again is a, uh, a professor at uh, University of Massachusetts, and I like this book, I thought I'd share it with you today. So... I think the biggest mistake that human beings make in thinking is actually not on the list. And so I'm going to have a seventh for you. Uh, I could put it on the front. I could put it near the end. I, I think I'll just sort of work it into the middle. As I look at his six, they come close to touching on what what I'm going to call binary thinking. I think increasingly it's referred to as binary thinking. I'm rather surprised he didn't include it, but again, touches on it in different ways. And as he concludes the book, he says, by the way, these are not the only six mistakes we make in thinking. There are many, many others. This is just a nice introduction. So I... I it, I just got to say, and, and, and if you've been listening to me over the years, you probably have already anticipated what I'm talking about, and, and that's this binary or either-or thinking. We approach understanding by dividing things into two, and there is duality at work in the world. There is duality in the fact that you have two feet and two arms and two hands and and two eyeballs and somebody shouts out yeah but only one nose yeah well you have two nostrils uh the body is divided down the middle by a spine the brain is divided by the corpus callosum and has two very distinct spheres gender uh you have male and female um, and in logic, you have right and wrong, or good and bad, or true and false. Look, these are not um, nothing wrong with bifurcation, dividing into two, or binary thinking as a elementary approach to understanding something that's brand new to you. But this seventh point that I'm going to make today and sort of weave in here is watch out, because this can be a real trap. Let me just say this um, at this point about it. I think this is part of the appeal of right-wing radio, since obviously there are more center independents or left-wing liberals in the United States than 
than the right, why is right-wing radio, in spite of the small number of conservatives in this country, so popular? And many of our youth and I agree that it's because it's simplistic. It's everything or nothing. It's all this or none of that. It's you're either with us or against us. It's everything or nothing. Shoot first and ask questions later. It's uh, <laughs> it's dead or alive, right? There is no nuance in conservative thinking. There is no variation or permutation or combination. And it appeals to, well, I guess the polite term is low information voter. How do you how do you kindly refer to stupid people? Now I don't want to conflate conservative with stupid. There are some bright conservatives, but not very many, and uh, they get shouted down. I mean, there are some valid conservative principles. Let's be clear, but they get shouted down by the crazy right, the militia people, the, the clan, um, the racists, and and the bigots. The the, the homophobics, um, the wingnuts out there that um, well, they have their own reason for being out there. And they overshadow the intelligent conservatives. So I don't want to overstate or, again, oversimplify the case. That's one of the mistakes we're going to talk about is this oversimplification that we tend to do to categorize and make things very simple. That happens on the left. There are progressive thinkers that tend to do the same thing. But by and large, um, that's what a liberal arts education offers. Uh, To be a liberal is basically, it means to be well-educated, to have been exposed to the humanities and the fine arts, basically to see those who are different from you as a resource that enriches you. Where on the right, the general tendency is to see someone who disagrees with you as always in direct opposition and therefore a threat. It's a, it's a very, um, it's not the only way to look at left-wing, right-wing politics, certainly, but it's a damn good one. Um, this This idea that, yeah, there are reactionaries on both ends, but policy-wise, it is the policy of the right wing to be reactionary, either or, right? No variation, no nuance, it's everything or nothing, where, you know, many broadcasters will say, liberal radio is too boring, because you talk about a third possibility, and and a fourth option, and a fifth alternative, and People don't want to hear that. They want you to turn every political issue and every social issue into a sporting contest with a winner and a loser. Now, I call this, and and uh, I've already said, I guess many others are beginning to refer to this as binary thinking. Just like a computer, it's zeros and ones, on or off. No in-between, no halfway, and sometimes in life that's enough, but often it's, it's not. 
So I'm going to touch on that as we move into these other six that are really the, the six core mistakes that we make, in, according to Professor Kinna. Let's begin with, um, well, in his order, number one, mistake number one from Kidda's book is that we prefer stories to statistics. Human beings would rather hear a good story than know the facts. Again, if you, um, if you were a good student and if you had enough schooling, there would have been a time, I'm sure, and, and, and given the kind of people that listen to this webinar, I'm sure we're pretty much talking to everybody here who's on board and listening to this live or the webinar, I mean, uh, or the podcast or the streaming, whatever. I think generally this kind of group knows what I'm talking about, that when you generalize about a group of individuals, for example, you need a large enough group to be statistically significant to make an intelligent generalization about the group. So well-informed people will often quote studies or surveys or polls that have been scientifically sampled, a, a representative cross-section, number one, and a large enough set of respondents, number two, to give meaning to the results. What a low-information voter, <laughs> again, I turn it to be nice, a less educated or sophisticated person will do, is tell you an anecdote. Uh, an anecdotal reference does not have the weight or the merit of a statistical study that's drawn from a significantly large base, right? Um, where can we go for an example? Racism is a good example of this, right? Where uh, a progressive person might be more likely to pull upon what they've read and say, well, there was this study in such and such university in such and such a time about race and the study found several significant things, blah, 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 blah. And then over here in the corner you have maybe just Mr. Redneck Racist who never really read a book or studied and really isn't interested in the facts or the statistics, but he's got a story to tell. And maybe it's about why he's a racist. Maybe it's about who... who <laughs> I wonder how many of us have people like this in our family. You'll get an anecdote from them or a story about the one person of color that they know that does not fit the stereotype. But it doesn't matter which way they go. Anecdotal evidence is not st statistically significant. And yet we love hearing stories. This is the very first mistake that Kidda lists in his book, Don't Believe Everything That You Think. All right. Nothing wrong with listening to the story, but you've got to remember 
when you're telling a story or listening to somebody else's story, that it's only an, uh, an anecdote. It's just a story. It's about one person in one situation at one time, this single occasion, now tell the story. Well, great. That's good. But it's not a response to disagreeing with or wanting to amplify upon this statistically significant survey. Let's see what else Kittis says. We prefer stories to statistics. Mistake number one. Even a bad story is preferred by most people over really good numbers. And this should not be surprising. We are social animals. Professor Kitta says, so whatever seems to connect us to others will have a bigger impact than cold, impersonal numbers. This leads us to making decisions based upon that one single story, which, in fact, may not be representative of larger trends while ignoring the statistics that tell us about those trends. All right. So those of you who are taking notes, that's number one. Nothing wrong with good stories. And Kidd is right. Professor Kidd is right. Um, we're all trying to reach out and connect with other people. We want to understand other people. We want to, we want to empathize. And the, the, the story is more appealing than just a page of numbers and averages and cold facts. Remember Joe Friday um, in the old Dragnet series? He wanted the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Now, I don't want your stories, right? And I don't know if you're old enough to remember Dragnet, but the characters always wanted to tell stories. And Friday, no, the, what was he, Detective Joe Friday or something was the character. And he's, nope, not interested in your stories. Just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Okay. Sherlock Holmes, same kind of thing. Brilliant, deductive mind, not a, you know, like like uh, Joe Gannon, uh, a character somebody made up, but somebody had to write that stuff. So, <laughs> just the facts. Let's nothing wrong with stories. Just keep in mind that's a story. That's a nice story, and it may have some facts in it. In fact, it may be a perfectly factual story, but it's only one person at one time. Here are these statistics over here, these studies, these polls, these trends. They may seem a little colder and a little less personal, but that's where you're going to get more information, more accurate information. Right? And you'll hear this. You, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about, where one person will lay down this this whole scenario based on all of this research that's been done and the response from somebody who disagrees is to tell a story about one person that they knew one time and that's supposed to what have the same merit or greater merit than than the survey or the study see so you got to be careful about anecdotes anecdotal evidence something you learn in statistics and communication classes at the college level. Okay, mistake number two. 
Yet it says we seek to confirm, not to question our ideas. You have an idea, a critical thinker will question his or her own idea. What most of us do is look for confirmation. It's just like our tendency to find approval and acceptance, to constantly be petitioning other people to find out if you're okay. Uh, the need to be the center of attention or, or or whatever. You want confirmation. You want people to say, you're okay, you're good, uh, we like your ideas. Um, even though you might get a lot more value out of a friend who confronted you and said, well, I can understand based on your story how you'd feel that way, but I think we need to question some of what you're saying. right? Well, to do that, without being defensive, without defending your story, um, is, again, a sign of a critical thinker, somebody you really would rather understand than be right. I think that's a nice way to say it, actually, because there are many people that would rather be right than really understand something. I mean, if you know you're right, you've shut down on understanding. There's, you know, there's nothing left to understand when somebody feels like they're right but think about it if you really knew you were right if you were so certain of your certainty (laughs) why wouldn't you have a nice uh, debate with somebody a nice respectful discussion challenging each other's ideas and even challenging your own and acknowledging to the other person when they make a good point you see When a person gets defensive, digs in their heels, and resists completely uh, any question of their position, that's pretty likely you're looking at a person who is not a critical thinker and does not desire to be a critical thinker and really does not want to grow and learn and understand. They're right. They were right. They are right. They're always going to be right. Secretly inside, they know they're faking it. But that's the persona they put forward. That's the tenacity of their ego. Can you do that? Can you question your beliefs? Let's read this a little further here. Everybody, Kenneth says, everybody wants to be right. Nobody really wants to be wrong. But this may be the primary driving force behind the fact that when people look at neutral evidence in front of them, they almost invariably focus on what seems to confirm what they already believe while ignoring what might count against their beliefs. Does that make sense to you? If you look at something that's neutral to your argument, or stands a leg in both worlds, part of this new information supports your argument, and another part, let's say 50-50, another half, the other half is directly in contradiction to your argument. Life is complex. The same bit of evidence could support you in one way and challenge you in another way, even though there doesn't seem to be any inconsistency in this new information. And again, kid is saying it's just human psychology 
to want to see the evidence that supports your argument and grab on to that and use it to reinforce your argument while ignoring and defending yourself against the equally valid part of that argument that challenges you. You know what this reminds me of is is uh, the tendency that people have to, in a sporting contest, root for one side or have a, a home team that they root for. And I mean, you know, some people, whether it's, you know, uh, professional or collegiate or high school, whatever the sport, football, baseball, what we call soccer in this country, or any basketball, any other sport, like I'm a Lakers fan, or I'm a um, Dodgers fan, or I love those angels, I live in Orange County. Why is it so, um, how shall I say it, so exceptional, so unusual for somebody to go to the ball game Again, baseball, football, basketball, soccer, whatever. And not really care who wins, but still be interested in the game. And so if somebody makes a good play offensively or defensively, you know, baseball, somebody hits a home run, why can't you enjoy the fact they hit a home run? Yay, regardless of which team it is. Why are we so emotionally invested in one side or the other. Now, I know what most people say about it. They say, well, I enjoy the game more that way. Well, I'm not sure that's true. Maybe it is. You enjoy the game more when you root for the team that wins than, <laughs> than you know, I, I, I don't think you enjoy the game more when you're invested in a team winning that, on this particular day ends up losing, that's not a good thing. I would argue that, again, not for everybody, but some of us uh, are going to enjoy the game much more if we just root for good plays offensively and defensively. And Somebody makes a great catch, you stand up and cheer, regardless of which team it was. You know, a defensive player, somebody, again, um, hits a double and drives in a run, yay, why not? Why do we have to be so emotionally invested in one thing or another and take sides? And It seems difficult, challenging at the very least, for us to detach and just observe what's happening without emotionally investing and identifying in this team over that team, or to go back to our topic here that I'm trying to illustrate, to, in the same way, invest emotionally in being right and defending yourself. There's no shame in being wrong unless you refuse to admit you're wrong. (laughs) There's shame in being obstinate, but not being wrong. In fact, it's People admire and respect a person who is open to learning, always questioning. Other people, sure, but also themselves, always wondering, always wanting to know more. Um, 
it's a curious thing. I'm anxious to uh, get some feedback on some of this stuff from you guys in a few minutes when we when we open it up to questions. Okay, mistake number three. We rarely appreciate the role of chance and coincidence in shaping events. Odds are that any randomly chosen person has no idea how odds or chance or randomness affect their lives. People think that unlikely events are very likely. And those same people then might think that likely events are very unlikely if it suits them. For example, people forget how large the numbers around them are. An event with a million to one odds against it will happen um, given a million tries. In New York City alone, this means that several such events could happen every day. Right? Consider the odds if you study a little bit of statistics and and what is meant by chance or or the odds of things. Uh, people don't understand this well. If I flip a coin four times and I get heads each time, what are the odds of getting heads the fifth time I flip the coin? Let's think about this for a minute. I flip the coin four times in a row, and I get heads. On the fifth time I flip the coin, what are the odds I'm going to get heads? Most people would get the answer wrong. It's 50-50. Most people think that your chance of getting heads on that fifth attempt would somehow be affected by the first four. Well, you got four in a row, so now your chances of getting a fifth go way, way down. Every time you do that, it's going to go down. Not really, because the coin flip is always 50-50, regardless of what happened before it. Cool, huh? Now, who's going to think of that if you haven't sat in a class and been shown just some basic statistics? Again, lots of us have two years of algebra, geometry, trigonometry, maybe a little calculus. Imagine all that math. Arithmetic, algebra, geometry, trigonometry, calculus. But we never did get to statistics. We don't know what the odds are. And uh, so you buy five lottery tickets. Well, no, wait a minute. If you bought one lottery ticket, you're in the pool. If you bought four more, how would that affect your odds? If you bought a hundred more, oh, let's all get together, we'll pool our money, we'll get a hundred of these lottery tickets. You know, against the tens of the odds, a million to one, ten million to one, whatever it is, a hundred million to one, you haven't affected your chances at all. It's one of the reasons I think state-run lotteries uh, or any kind of lottery is unethical because you're taking advantage of people's confusion about statistics that they don't understand. They think, well, if I buy two tickets, I'll double my chances. If I buy three tickets, I'll triple my chances. No, you haven't. You haven't changed your odds a bit by buying all those lottery tickets. 
one lottery ticket makes sense. Now, <laughs> now you're in the pool. But after that, to buy a second lottery ticket for any given, you know, lotto drawing, uh, you're just throwing your money away. And it's tragic to watch people do that because usually the the people that invest, if you will, quote unquote, invest in the lottery, are poor people. That's their idea of retirement, right? They're going to win the lottery. No, you're not. I'm sorry. That's very, very unlikely. Okay. So the role of chance and coincidence is mistake number three. Mistake number four, we often misperceive the world around us. We, we just don't see things happening in our vicinity as accurately as we think we do or as much as we'd like to. We see things that are not really there. I don't mean hallucinate, but we do have a tendency to believe that we saw something that wasn't there, happens all the time, while failing at the same time to see things that actually are right in front of your face. Even worse, our level of confidence in what we have perceived is no indication at all of how likely we are to be right. You know, This is a little difficult to expand upon, um, un- unless and until you consider memory. And we really come to that in number six, and I still have to get to number five. I think it's easier to see how memory is selective, how two people who attended the same event maybe, you know, three, five years ago could have such different memories of the event and then argue about who's right and who's wrong. And one will say, I have a great memory. You must have a horrible memory because yours is different than mine. Well, no, I have a great memory. Maybe you're the one with a bad memory. Well, more than likely, you both have a very good memory, but all memory is selective. You remember what you care about. You remember according to, I'll use the phrase emotional amplitude. If you have a high emotional attachment to something, either positive emotion or negative emotion, could be a really big, oh boy, golly gee, wasn't that incredible, or some traumatic, horrific event. With an equally large amplitude, positive or negative, it doesn't matter, but some powerful event emotionally, you're going to remember. You may not remember it accurately, but you'll remember what you want to remember and what you need to remember, what has meaning for you, what fits into your belief system. Again, two people can take the same event interpreted in different ways and use it to support very different arguments. How'd you do that if you saw the same event? Because we're emotional as well as mental creatures, and we want what we want. We believe what we want to believe. So consider that you play around with this. You know, if you think you see something that maybe isn't there or shouldn't be there, take another look. Be be more critical. Slow down, basically. Be in the moment. Breathe, relax, 
Again, most people are not looking out through their eyes. Their brains are so full of ideas, so full of thoughts demanding our attention that we're really not paying very much attention to what's out in front of us. What's what's coming in through your eyeballs and your other physical senses has to compete with the thoughts that are spinning around in your head. And if the thoughts that are spinning around in your head present themselves as being even a little bit dangerous or hazardous, you're going to focus on those even though your eyes may be open and you're not seeing what's right in front of your face. Or you thought you saw it, but it wasn't really there. Number five, we tend to oversimplify. Reality is a lot more complicated than we realize. Indeed, it's more complicated than we can even imagine. Every analysis that we make of what goes on must eliminate many, many factors. If we don't eliminate those factors, if we don't simplify, in many cases, we never get any place in our thinking. Unfortunately, we often simplify too much and then miss important critical things that we need to take into account, need to consider, because of our tendency to make it simple. Now again, this is a balancing act. There's a lot of value in simplifying things, taking a breath, letting go, detaching, stepping back, seeing it simply. You just don't stop there, right? Zoom out, get the big picture, and then zoom in. And again, make a deliberate effort to look for information that contradicts what you already believe. Be a critical thinker. And you will benefit from that. You know, to give up being a know-it-all is very liberating. To let go of the need to be so damn smart and have all the answers is very liberating. I've only trained a few talk show hosts in my life, but that's something that I've always taught any student um, that that aspired to be a talk show host on or or a pundit or a commentator. And I said, you do not need to be the answer person once you learn to be good at being the question person. You can question yourself. And people will like you a lot. Nobody really likes a smartass. Nobody really likes a know-it-all. What kind of conversation can you have with somebody that knows it all? That's no fun. You want to talk to people that are curious and go, really, is that true? I never knew that. Well, I always thought it was this way. Well, I'll be damned. How about that? Well, do you think it could be both ways? Well, do you think sometimes it could be this way and other times that way? Oh, you think there's a third possibility. I see. And we break out of the binary. Well, then maybe there's a fourth way of looking at this thing, right? And in a lighthearted and jovial manner, you can be very critical, but focus on the questions instead of having to have all the answers. It's just so freeing. I'm speaking from personal experience. As a young man, uh, I thought I had to know all the answers. 
And I just ended up feeling increasingly foolish when it became apparent that I did not know all the answers, not even close. And then number six, um, our memories are often inaccurate. This is the last one I referred to a minute ago. To be fair, this is not really a mistake in our thinking because we can't help the fact that our memories are unreliable. The real mistake is in not realizing how imperfect our memories are, not understanding the ways in which our memories can go wrong and then failing to do what we can do to make up for this fact, account for the fact that your memory isn't perfect. Right? Instead of arguing for, I've got a better memory than yours, I've got a great memory, how about saying, well, I could be wrong, maybe the way I remember it is a little biased. You know, I'm not sure. Wouldn't it be a lot easier to share information? And in the end, you can walk away thinking whatever you want to think, but I think a lot of these are social skills we're talking about, too. And um, then I want to share one more paragraph here from a reviewer who talks about Kidda's book and summarizes it. And he says as a kind of final note that, uh, as the author points out in the book, these are not the only mistakes people make, but if you can make a habit of noticing and avoiding these six, you'll be way ahead of most people and doing far better than you were before. You can really learn the benefits, extraordinary benefits of being a critical thinker. Not just to criticize other people, but primarily to criticize yourself in a constructive way. Um, So you can't just focus on these six. You have to keep in mind that the point is to become more skeptical and more critical in your thinking and thereby more consistently distinguish the things that are most likely to be true from those that just aren't worth your time. Okay, So there are the six from the book, Don't Believe Everything You Think, and then the seventh item that I mentioned the sort of runs through all of this, the whole idea of binary thinking and to avoid everything or nothing either or thinking, because that makes every variation, no matter how minor, an opposite. If, if, if there's only two ways anything can be, then somebody could agree with you 90% of the way, and you take the 10% and t- <laughs> turn it into this violent disagreement, as if this person is somehow a threat to you, or they're opposing you because they have an opposing point of view. They are opposite. They're not part of us. They're them. Well, wait a minute. We agree on 90%. Why We might agree on 95%. Why are you singling this out? Because I'm a binary thinker, and that's what I do. I oversimplify. Right. Uh, I must say, a lot of the, the material available on critical thinking is complex, um, difficult to wade through and uh, even harder to teach and that's why I recommended this book why I like this book and why I thought I'd share it with you today because it is accessible and rather breezy 
and it claims to be nothing more than an introduction to the topic. But hopefully that'll that'll help you get to a place of greater equanimity and balance and not so emotionally invested in needing, in, in needing to always have the right answer. Give it up, you know. Ask questions. It's so much more fun. Really, I didn't know that. It's far out. I mean, just just listen and open yourself to new things. It's part of growth. There, there really is no benefit in being a know-it-all other than... No, I take it back. There is no benefit, <laughs> no benefit at all that I can think of in, in being one of those wise guys. Uh, know it all. So let's go to your questions now. If you're on the, uh, if you're listening to us live and you're on the web, you'll see a little text box on the left. You can use, type in um, your comment, or better yet, your question. And uh, look around here at who we have, and uh, enter your name and your city, and click on the submit button. That's the most important part. Be sure and hit submit after you fill out that little box. You can do that now if you haven't already. And if you're on the phone, just press star 2, and that will raise your hand on my panel. And we'll go to the phones in a minute. Let's start with the uh, text Q&A. See who's with us today and who wants to say hello. We have um, in Orange County, Valerie, who left us a note just before the webinar started. Actually, she says, sorry to miss you this week, visiting the Renaissance Fair today. As always, with aloha from my heart to yours. Thank you, Valerie. And I hope you have a uh, wonderful time at the Renaissance Fair. She even spelled Renaissance right. I'm very impressed <laughs> with that. I'd have to go to the spell checker for that one for sure. We went to the Taro Festival uh, my wife Doreen and I and some friends just yesterday in Hana. And if you know Hawaii, you know Hana. Or if you know Maui, you know Hana and the famous road to Hana. And it's over on the east end, the um, the windward side, North Shore. And uh, very wet, 350 or more inches of rain a year. And Taro, as I'm sure you know, is a traditional crop that was grown by the old Hawaiians, and they um, pound the root and turn it into a paste that they uh, that they eat called poi, P-O-I, poi, and it's made out of the taro root. There's even a political side to it all because the taro farmers are always fighting with the sugarcane and pineapple people in the Central Valley for for water rights. The, as you can imagine, the uh, sugarcane and pineapple fields are owned by Howley's big mainland corporations, and they just take the water. You know, they divert it. They steal it. Um, just like Southern California stole the water from the Central Valley, the Owens Valley. And um, Chinatown, right? You saw that movie. Same kind of thing going on in Maui. And there are no springs here. We're in the, you know, nearest fresh water is 
2,000 miles away, so we're completely reliant upon rain, and the Taro farmers want their water back. But aside from that, it was a lot of fun. It's a very rural area, and great people, wonderful music, real hula, not the hotel stuff, but the real deal. If you ever come to Hawaii, whatever island you you go to, enjoy yourself at the hotels and those wonderful beaches, but get up country, go to the countryside, uh, go to the rainforest side, and meet some of the local people, and find out what Hawaii's really like. To consider that uh, most people only know the inside of the Hyatt, the Hilton, or the, or the Sheraton Hotel, and the beach out in front, and that's about all they ever saw besides the airport. Seems to me a, a travesty, a tragedy, anyway. So uh, get out of town when you come to Hawaii. Come, come check the rural areas. From La Habra, Carol Postel is with us, of course. She's always here. I don't think Carol's missed a program yet. She says, hello, Michael and Doreen. Hi, Carol. Phil Jaffe in Canoga Park. And um, he says, uh, greetings to you and Doreen. Just saying that I'm here. Good, Phil. Thank you. Another critical thinker, Patricia Vega in Los Angeles. Aloha, Michael. Great show. Thank you, Patricia. She and her husband, Rich, visited Maui just a few months ago. It was nice to see them. Okay, so let's go to the um, telephones and see who we can get. We have a couple of callers. Again, star two, if you'd like to be live with us on the uh, on the webinar. Let's go to Albuquerque and Diane. You're on the Mystery School webinar with Michael. Hi, Diane. Hi, happy Sunday. Thank you. Happy Sunday right back at you. Thanks. You know, um, I work with the problem-solving team at the uh, job I have, and I think one of the important things to do when you go validate what you're thinking is do it with someone who doesn't think like you. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, that looks at the box differently. It really allows you to kind of... um, reconsider some things you may not have thought of and uh, make your decisions and judgments based on more information. Do you have any way of categorizing those people um, when you think of a person as having a different approach than you do? Do you say, well, uh, I value this person's idea because they their approach is this and my approach is that? I mean, how well, or are you just looking for anybody who has a different point of view than you? You know, what we do, and I don't, I, I you know, I'm sure there's a lot of other ways to do it, but <clears throat> I'm, I'm an intuitive thinker. So um, I look at the big picture and then I consider the issues, but I always try to validate what I'm thinking with people who are more more sensory, who who um, look at details, um, minute bits of information, uh, study a lot, analyze real carefully. And 
Do you find that most people you work with are receptive to this? Yeah, in fact, our entire group, we, we work within our group um, using the old Myers-Briggs personality test. So this is a matter of policy for your group? Absolutely, and especially for the problem-solving team, um, so that we mix the different types together, because we absolutely look at problem-solving differently. We, look, we all look at the box differently. Yeah, we have different boxes even. Yeah, and I don't even know what's in the box. <laughs> you know, so I'm usually way out there. There's a great puzzle. You know, people talk about out-of-the-box thinking, and yet um, when you present them with this puzzle, they usually fail to get it. Have you ever seen the um, the puzzle where you're presented with nine dots on a page, um, a three-by-three three grid of dots, uh, in other words, three columns and three rows of three dots each. So you've got nine dots in what appears to be a square pattern, but they're just nine dots. People, because of the tendency to project, will think they see a square there. But again, in fact, they've just been handed a piece of paper with nine dots, three rows, three columns, three dots each. And the challenge is you ask them then, try this with your team, Diane, if you, had, if you don't know this, this puzzle already. The challenge right. is to take a pencil and connect all nine dots with four contiguous lines. In other words, you can't pick the pencil up off the paper. Do you know that puzzle? Do you know I... Years ago, I remembered that puzzle from years ago, but I, I don't remember the end result. Well, the solution, however you do it, it doesn't really matter where you start, but the solution requires that you extend the line through the first three dots beyond the third dot and go way out and then come back on a diagonal hit a couple of more, it's hard to explain without showing you visually. But the point is you have to go outside of the box. Oh, wow. And you show that to people, they try and try and try and try. And uh, Truth of the matter is I've shown this to scores of people in my life. The only person that ever did it without having seen it first is my wife. She, she saw it right away completely out-of-the-box thinker. But when people are not able to do it, and you show them the solution, sometimes they say, well, that's not fair. And you say, why? Well, you cheated. Why? <laughs> well, you went outside of the lines. I said, there are no lines. There's just nine dots. <laughs> and then they understand, oh, is that what out-of-the-box thinking is? There is no box except the limitations we put on ourselves. You know, we, we are taught from, from kindergarten to stand in line, to toe the line, right, to all line up for recess or line up at the drinking fountain. And, and uh, again, the, the overtone of having to be in line or toe the line, you know, this this whole 
rigid construction of having been raised by authorities saying this is the one right way to be, the one right behavior, and the one right way to think is a challenge to us later as adults. We have to unlearn before we can relearn how to think for ourselves. Exactly. We One of the things that's, that has always seemed so funny to me is we have 350 people, maybe around 400 now, that work in a building, and we have four elevators. One of them is for the service folks, you know, that are going to bring up boxes or whatever. And But we only have two people on the service team, and they work in three buildings. So when I'm running late, I jump on the service elevator, uh-huh. and then I'm, I'm on time for meetings. When the other folks are running late, they, they will never get on the service elevator because they think it's a rule. And right. so they wait for the other elevators. And, you know, if it's around lunchtime or break time or, or the end of the day or the beginning of the day, they have to wait. And they're late for their meetings. <laughs> and they watch me get on the elevator alone. And I say, come on. Oh, no, 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 no. So finally one day I was with a couple of the gals I work with, and we had gotten back late for lunch and had an had an appoint I had a meeting that we needed to get on right away. So I hit the button and the door opens and I jump on and I go, Come on and they go, No, no, we can't ride in that elevator And I said, Why? Are we gonna get a ticket? Is there a policeman up there? Get on the elevator. And so now we're typically only the three people that will ride that elevator up and down. Yeah, because if everybody did it, it would be anarchy, right? I guess. I guess. (laughs) Thinking for yourself is terrifying to a lot of people. They would much rather be led around by their noses. And uh, you can see that in traffic, too, especially in L.A. You'll have two or three lanes at a red light, and all the cars are in one lane. Like, there's 15 cars in one lane. And right next to it is a lane with two cars in it. Right. But this one line is so far back that I guess people can't see that there's another line. So it's like, it it reminds me of this Gary Larson cartoon I used to have over my desk for years. You you know the cartoonist Gary Larson? Are you familiar with his stuff? He always uses animals to make a point. And he's got this cartoon of a flock of sheep all grazing in a field. And in in sort of the back of the scene, on the top of the hill, this one sheep stands up on its hind legs and waves its front legs in the air and says, Come on, you guys, we're not just a bunch of sheep. (laughs) But, of course, they are. Of course. (laughs) And so they just keep grazing, and there's no revolution here. Um, I I think uh, there is this great fear of being free and being responsible and having to think for yourself. And yet the choices we make to give up that freedom, to fall in line, to toe the line, to stand in line, oh, you can't get on the freight elevator. You're not freight, you know. 
what are you, an idiot? Don't get on the freight elevator. That's way too smart. Uh, I just think people are frightened of freedom, and they'd rather be told what to do. I guess. I guess. And following rules for a lot of people is comfort. Someone else made the decision. It must be well thought out. For me, when I see a rule, I go, well, why are they doing that? <laughs> Maybe it's our generation. I don't know. But I don't. Again, you know, I don't want to make still another mistake of critical thinking and oversimplifying and generalizing, but that's part of conversation. We're talking about tendencies that we all have and that, as I hear you saying, we have to make a deliberate and conscious effort to break out of the box, to realize there never was a box, that's all self-imposed. Stop agreeing to be treated like sheep. Stop acting like sheep. And stop cooperating with the shepherd. And we'll all have much richer and more rewarding lives, I think. Oh, I agree. Be human, not a sheep. Thank you, Diane. Do you have a parting shot for us? No, but I sure enjoyed the class today. Thank you. I did, too. I appreciate your call. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. So long. Aloha. And uh, Robert would like to be on. Hello, Robert. You're on the Mystery School with Michael Benner. Aloha, Michael. How are you today? Aloha, Robert. Better and better. Thank you. Hey, pretty good. Uh, I wonder if I might uh, just throw my two cents in here in the waning moments. Um, with um, It's kind of an interesting question. This... Uh, Critical thinking has really come up of late um, for people who are, have questioned theology, and because there are so many recovering Catholics and so many recovering Jews and Mormons and Baptists, the pendulum has swung this thing that we call spirituality, which is actually a dangerous word. What we really mean is an unbridled exploration of consciousness. Um, there has been a tendency to also swing and say, well, let's apply critical thinking to this thing called spirituality or the exploration of consciousness. And it's important to understand that in that venture, critical thinking is useless. If we had more time, I could explain why. Or if we had a lot of time, I could uh, refer people to things that they could do themselves that would prove it to themselves beyond a shadow of a doubt. But uh, with respect to theology itself, critical thinking is highly useful. When it comes to the exploration of consciousness, on an individual level, absolutely useless. That's a <laughs> that's a very important point because consciousness stands behind thoughts. Precisely. We can stop thinking and still be conscious. If you're thinking, you're using the mind. The mind is of the brain. The mind is a mad. The mind is right. a material phenomena. But it is an approach. It is an approach, and it is a useful thing for dealing in this construct we call time and space, where there is cause and effect, and a, a you know perceivable cause and effect. Uh, you know, experience. It's interesting what Diane was just talking about. Why are people you know afraid to, you know, why are we afraid to sort of 
think for ourselves or do think well it's because we are brought we we arrive in a world where cause and effect is apparently real and we don't have experience that others who are established here do have and we get sort of trained we get boxed in we get conditioned to sort of extend that useful initial training out and beyond into the rest of our lives when really we have you know an opportunity after a certain point when we realize okay yeah you don't want to stick your hand in hot coals and you don't want to smash your fingers you know you don't you don't want to jump off tall buildings there's things that you need to be aware of in the physical universe but once you got those basics then you can sort of expand a little bit and, and question things, especially with regard to your own consciousness. And when people get restricted there, you know, when they get to thinking, well, well all I've got is, you know, what the, the minister tells me or what the latest scientist says or the politician, then we're really, really in a box. Yeah, this is a very good point, and uh, I don't, think I would have made it if you hadn't called, because um, you're really taking it to the next level. I'm glad you have. Um, my business partner, uh, Steve Snyder, and I did one of our premium audio programs at the FocusedPassion.com site on the topic, Thinking About Thinking. Uh and in that program, we say there is such a thing as thinking about thinking, but there's also such a thing as watching thinking without thinking about thinking. <laughs> yes. One one could be called uh, what Krishnamurti, Krishnamurti coined the great term paralysis through analysis. Oh, I never knew that was attributable to him, but it's a great term. And that's thinking about thinking. Right. But watching yourself thinking about thinking, oh, that's an altogether different state. Very different thing. That is, I presume, what you're refer- one way of, of responding to what you're referring to, which is that mindful sense of detachment where you, you realize that much of what we call thought is really habitual and rather autonomic and uh, doesn't really speak well for our actual intelligence. We just, if we're going to multitask, a lot of it's going to have to be on autopilot. You know, So that's, I know the addiction. I know the, the adrenaline rush. I know the appeal, especially in young people, of keeping 15 plates spinning all at the same time, but... You burn out on that. Really a a downside to that. By the way, a little aside, uh, uh, forgive me, but uh, i got to tell the story now that I talk about plate spinning. Uh, I I attended this event in Glendale, California about four years ago. It was the 75th anniversary of this old movie house. Okay? And uh, it was a big deal. They had antique cars there, and the mayor was there, and the governor, and, and all these old uh, celebrities. Uh, I think it was hosted by Art Linkletter, who at the time was like 85 years old. And my God, Mickey Rooney was there. He's still alive. And all these old timers. 
And somewhere they found this plate spinner. I, I swear the guy was 85 if he was a day. But, you know, he was a little off his game. And so <laughs> here he is. He's got like, like the old Ed Sullivan show. He's got 10 or 12 of these plates spinning. And the whole game, of course, is that you let a couple of them start to slow down. And then you run back at the last minute and get them going again. And most of the kids in the audience, the really younger kids, had never seen anything like this, right? And so they're right on the edge of their chairs as the plate starts to slow and wobble. But again, God bless him, this old timer, his timing was a little <laughs> was a little bad. So on uh, at least one, and as I recall, two or three occasions, the plate actually stopped spinning. And yet it still hung there on the stick. And I realize these guys have special plates with a rim on the bottom that is so deep that it wouldn't fall off the stick even if it did stop. And it occurred to me from like a Zen point of view what a powerful allegory that is for what would happen if we stopped... um, how shall I say, working at life or believing we have to generate our lives with constant thought and action and performance if instead of earning a living we could spend maybe some time each day just being a living and let the plate drop, it it won't really drop. Everything will be okay. if you give up that plate spinning for a little while. So I had to share that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really quite uh, profound if you tie that in with, say, something like what you're speaking of, uh, intelligence. Um, our real intelligence doesn't actually even awaken until we surrender kind of to what is, and we just drop. You know, you talk about being a know-it-all, to being a know nothing, celebrating that, yeah, and and yeah, being really, really phenomenally happy of looking at yourself. You go, I don't know a blessed <laughs> thing about anything. Right, right. It's heard this great quote by uh, you know you probably got to go here, but the other night uh, Roy Tuckman was playing uh, uh, Shinzen Young, yeah, who I'm sure you know of, and uh, Shinzen Young was quoting a, uh, I think it was a Zen master. It said. Uh, from bath to bath, all I've uttered is nonsense, meaning the bath he was bathed in and the bath his, uh, when he was born and then the bath that his body was bathed in when he died. From bath to bath, I've uttered nothing but nonsense. Yeah. And when you could, Because when you look at everything that you've uttered in the face of the ultimate, in this case, personal experience, Right of transiting from one state to another, it's all just mind-warping rot in the end, everything that we can say about it. It's so feeble. It's so far off the mark. Uh, We really don't even have words to describe how limited the words we are using to begin with. Yeah. Um, That's freeing. It's very liberating to to know that. And, And I think that's wisdom. Wasn't it Lao Tzu that said, for knowledge, add to, for wisdom, subtract from? 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's the unlearning process, as you said a moment ago, unlearning. We don't have to acquire anything uh, to to access the, the ultimate subliminal processing systems that have always been available to us. All we have to do is really kind of let go and stop what we've been doing. And, and you know, mostly, as you said, just drop the assumption that you know anything. Once you start hanging on to the one thing, what you think you know, then you're limited to the extent of that one point. What you you know contracts down to that one spot. It's, It's a very important point. We talked in Thursday night's video conference about judgment and not judging other people, but we were also talking about other things that we judge, like how old were you when you decided you hate broccoli? Well, that was a long time ago. Maybe today you don't hate broccoli, but if you approach it with the mindset you've carried all of your life, uh, who knows? And the the fact that we judge things is part of that process of bringing our ignorance to it, and then the universe is happy happy to conform to our ignorance and create these appearances that we know something. It's such a wonderfully complex riddle and, uh, and, and paradox. One of the things I like about philosophy is the willingness of women and men who love philosophy to embrace paradox and to rest easy in the middle of contradiction and uh, be okay with it, where you know, most of us, for most of our lives, figure those are all problems that have some resolution somehow. There's got to be a, an answer or a way of putting this to rest. And again, quoting Lao Tzu, I believe, he said, uh, all truth is found in paradox. And th- this is this is wonderful stuff, and I'm really glad you took it to this level for us. How about a parting shot? Uh, once came to me when I asked what what is what is the the uh, what is the teacher what is the guru and this comes down to the same thing we're talking about the, the the true teacher the true manifestation of the guru is the one who successfully embodies uncertainty. Oh, there you go. Very nicely said. Very good. Very good. Thank you, Robert. Hey. Aloha, Michael. Aloha, bro. Bye. Okay, uh, and then I'll swing back to the uh, text side of things and see if we have anybody new here. Apparently, yes, here are some new people. Karen in Haiku has jumped in, and she said, uh, yesterday I was asked if I believe in reincarnation, and I could not answer. I suddenly felt concerned that uh, my belief was based on an either-or. Yeah, well, that's sounds like that's how the question was presented. Do you or don't you? Either or. Um, whose version? <laughs> um, in Hinduism, reincarnation is not limited to the idea of a human soul becoming a human soul becoming a human soul, but most Hindus believe in transmigration. Maybe Buddhists too, I'm not sure. I guess it's up to the individual. Transmigration, as opposed to reincarnation, is um, migrating across, right? Transmigration. So you could come back as a cockroach or a monkey 
um, or a human, or an elephant, or a flower, or an oak tree, or, you know, gases, supposedly, who knows, or a planet, who knows. So what, what did they mean uh, by reincarnation? Karen says, in uh, ancient days, storytellers could hand down a story verbatim, and I think we trusted the integrity of the teller, and so we trusted the content. Yeah, good point. And um, so let's do a uh, visualization exercise. I I mentioned the Thursday night video meeting, and I want to mention that again. Um, We've been adding names to the invitation list week by week for about five or six weeks now. And uh, for whatever reason, I think because the video conference is about primarily having a webcam and a microphone, or at least a microphone, it's great to see everybody's face live streaming. It's so cool. And we're just doing a discussion group. It's at 6.30 Pacific time, uh, Thursday evenings. That'd be 9.30 on the East Coast. And... uh, My point is I've opened it up now to everybody. And the newsletter that went out yesterday, you've all been invited. So check your newsletter. And uh, you just have to get this little browser plug-in before you can do it. It's sort of like Flash, but it's unique to the system. It's called Zorap. Z like Z-O-R-A-P. Paul like Paul. Like Zebra Oscar Radio. Alpha, Peter, Zorap. And if you just go to zorap.com with your favorite browser, maybe maybe it's Explorer or Firefox or Safari or Opera or Chrome or whatever. doesn't much matter. Just take your favorite browser to zorap.com and register with the site. Part of that process is they'll offer you a little plug-in, or sometimes they're called add-ons. It's just a tiny little bit of software that you download and install into your browser. And it's totally easy-peasy. Anybody can do it. Just follow the prompts on the screen, and now your browser is wired and fired and ready to go. And um, you'll it's all invisible in the background. You'll never see it, but... Then when you come to the event on Thursday night, you'll be able to join us by going to zorap.com slash mbenner. My first initial and last name, M like Michael Benner. So once you get that plug-in installed, then use that same browser Thursday night at 6.30 Pacific, 9.30 Eastern. Go to zorap.com slash mbenner. Right, and voila, you pop up on the screen with everybody else. We have a limit of 50. It's a lot of people, and we did a dozen last week with little problem. Worked real well, so we're going to invite you to do that. Whether you're listening live or to this as a podcast, um, we're, we're doing that on a regular basis now. And of course, that's all free as well. Wanted to mention that. Okay, let's do a little meditation on this whole idea of critical thinking. And uh, as uh, 
as Robert took us to the next level, going beyond thinking at all. But you have to be a critical thinker to get to the point of watching your thoughts without thinking about your thoughts. It is an approach, right? It's odd. It's like you have to develop the ego before you can release the ego. One of those paradoxes or conundrums. You know, the spiritual seeker often finds themselves with the dilemma, why am I doing all this persona development if in the end I'm going to transcend it? Well, because there rungs on a ladder, and you have to stand on these rungs to get to the next one, and then reach with your arm and pull, push with your leg. It's it's part of the path, and really not so paradoxical that you have to develop the self in order to realize that you are not that self. So. Excuse me a minute here. Close your eyes and relax. Take a nice, slow, deep breath or two. And begin to slow it all down. And what I really mean is let it slow down. Allow your thoughts As your body relaxes and your emotions become more tranquil, those thoughts will become quieter, fewer in number, and less frenetic. As you create and sense in your body a softening, a feeling of letting go. And after three or four nice, slow, deep breaths, allow your breathing to return to its normal and natural cadence. Let your body breathe itself. Scan your body with your awareness again, slowly. Releasing the last of any residual tension in your muscles. Feeling very safe and very relaxed. Feeling even loved and loving and lovable. As your breathing finds its natural cadence, And you continue to relax, to let go, to unwind, and to simply let it be for a few minutes. Just put it all down. This enormous effort that is your life, this struggle we sometimes say that is your life 
Put it all down. Drop it. Set it off to the side. As if there's nothing else you'd rather be doing for the next five minutes. Nowhere else you need to be. Nowhere else you'd rather be. And simply sitting, relaxed, safe, and allowing my voice to guide you. And initially, you will have thoughts. Even though they are not purposeful or deliberate thoughts as if to solve a problem, even when we put that down, the tendency of the mind is to prattle on, generating what might even seem to be random thoughts. And I'd like you to consider that you're not doing that. You may have thoughts that are responses to my narrative right here and right now. Some of those thoughts may seem to be responses to what I'm saying. But whether they are or whether they're just in the background, if I were to stop talking for two or three minutes, your mind would race on. I'll show you. Let me just be quiet for 20 or 30 seconds. Well, you do nothing but watch yourself think. Now I'd like you to move your awareness down into your body. And while I remain quiet for 20 or 30 seconds, just feel yourself feeling. Do your best not to think about how you feel, but to be in your body with an awareness simply of how you feel, emotional feelings and physical feelings. Simply feel.
I'd like you to consider that there are people you know who believe that their identity includes their property. That the car that they drive, the home in which they live, the clothing and jewelry they wear identifies them. Indeed, you may have some of that too. And without even bothering to argue whether that's necessary or essential, imperative or unneeded, whatever, except that you do know that you are more than your stuff. They're simply possessions that you've clutched, held on to, wrapped around yourself. But you know you're not that. You're not your stuff. You can't take it with you, so to speak. You're also not your money or your power, or your status, or your prestige, or how much leverage you can put on somebody. You're more than that. You're more than the physical world around you. Indeed, you are not your body. Every seven years or so, you get a brand new body. Not, not all at once, but you know, little by little, <clears throat> bit by bit. With the exception of a few nerve cells, every cell in the body, bone, blood, tissue, ligament, tendon is replaced. Cell by cell. So, if you live to be 70 years old, you've had at least 10 bodies, (laughs) right? So how could you be your body? Your body is made out of what you've had to eat. You're not the stuff you own. You're not your money. You're not your status. You're not your body. You're not your thoughts. You can think, you can reason. Today we've discussed some of the merits of being a critical thinker when thinking is needed, even essential. For dealing with the world around you. For relating to other people that are thinking. And then to communicate with those people. You have to be a critical thinker. It's like you have to have a body and you got to have some money and some clothes and hopefully some shelter and maybe a car to get you around. Pretty essential, pretty imperative things, but this is not your identity. This is not who you are, not even your thoughts. For you could learn to watch the thoughts. To watch that thought stream or train of thoughts 
it continues even when you have stopped thinking purposefully or deliberately. And you're also not your emotional nature. Although emotions are the quality of life, the colors, the textures, they're real, real enough, just like you thought. Your body's real enough. Your money in your car is real enough. Your thoughts and your feelings, real enough, but not really who you are. It's very good to learn to be critical in our thinking. We need to develop our sense of self as individuals, self-confidence and self-esteem, to even begin to get to a point where you can move beyond it, release the ego, release that self that needed some confidence or esteem or love because you come to realize you are that love beyond all of this. Beyond the stuff you own and the money, beyond the body, beyond the thoughts, beyond the feelings. Something remains when you release all of that. When you put it down, ignore it, turn away from it. The universe is pervaded. Something remains. It's consciousness. It's love. I don't mean romantic love or some affinity that's emotional in nature, but a capital L love that is awareness or consciousness itself. And so when the eyes are closed and the body is still and the mind is quiet and the emotions are tranquil, you remain aware, conscious, alert, awake, sensitive to those feelings, sensitive and aware of the thought process, sensitive and aware to your physical feelings, sensations, pleasure and physical pain or discomfort, symptoms of your physical condition or emotionally it's similar, symptoms, emotionally speaking as well of your condition. Consider you are that point of awareness. You are that 
mindful self that can watch the thoughts without thinking and experience the feelings without being an effect of your emotions. And from that point, you allow yourself to be intelligent and reasonable, to be sensitive to your feelings and empathetic to others. In this way, we can be in the world, but ultimately not of the world. And this is equanimity. This is the balance point between spirit and matter. To stand one foot in both worlds, above and below, aware of yourself as awareness, and yet extending yourself into the world of form for all the practical purposes and benefits that accrue. And suggest to yourself, I am that I am. Tasvirasi, thou art that. Not this, you're that. In form, but above and free of form. Stand above it. And appropriate your ego, your personality, for the greater good of all concerned. You're part of that greater good. This is no big sacrifice. You are part of that greater good. I think it's Winston Churchill we quoted in our newsletter this week who said, among many brilliant things, you make a living by what you get. You make a life by what you give. Be the one that gives, that radiates, that emanates. I want you to reorient yourself now deliberately to the sound of my voice and remember the room around you. Take a nice, slow, deep breath, inhaling, fill your lungs. Hold as you peek. And now exhale slowly and open your eyes now, wide awake, rested, alert, feeling fine, back in the room with this greater understanding of who you are and your relationship to all things. All right? Well, hey, thanks a lot. Finally, I just want to remind you that of all the services and goodies we have for you, our own social net for people in the personal growth, the blog, the newsletter. The newsletter this week has a grid of a whole bunch of fun, cool things that you can do. And we'd really love for you to get involved and get your friends involved. And join the video conference on Thursday night if you have a webcam and a 
microphone or even just a mic. A lot of computers have the camera and the mic built in now. Just be sure you get that browser plug-in and then join us Thursday nights. Again, 6.30 Pacific time. And remember, focused passion. This is really the engine that makes all of this possible. We've got all this free stuff and then one stream of premium programs you can purchase individually for 99 cents or subscribe 3.96 a month you end up with four programs a year free why don't you just get the free account to start go to focusedpassion.com there's an ed in that so it's the w's.focusedpassion.com and just say send me the free stuff just the samples and all you have to do is leave a first name and an email and then choose a password the next time you log in, even one minute later. Uh, six complete free programs will be in your browser. That's a collection that you can add to, again, individually, program by program, 99 cents or subscribe to the stream. All the controls to unsubscribe and resubscribe are right there. And um, we've got as I say, about 130 of those programs. We're starting to bundle them into bigger albums and packages. I'd love for you to check that out. Okay, That's part of what helps make all of this free stuff possible. So do what you can. Consider that subscription for uh, its pocket change, three ninety six a month. Okay, focusedpassion.com. So for Steve and I, let me... Thank you, mahalo, and uh, invite you to join us every Sunday for the Wisdom Seminar here. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. Aloha from Maui.